my experience of grief and my work as a grief counselor is is about helping people to actually be with the power of that experience as a transformational invitation. Welcome to Healing at the Edge, a podcast featuring interviews, archive talks, and teachings on conscious living, conscious dying with Ramdev Dale Borglum, brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. Dale has been a meditation teacher for nearly 50 years and has been at the bedside of the dying and their loved ones for over 40 years. He was the director of the Hanuman Foundation and founded the first center for conscious dying in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He's taught with Stephen Levine, Ram Dass, and countless others on the spiritual path. Dale is still working with the dying today. For more information, please visit livingdying.org. Welcome, everybody. This is Ramdave Dale Borglum at the Healing at the Edge podcast channel on the Be Here Now Network. And today I am so, so very happy to have my old friend, Mirabai Starr, who I've known since she was a teenager and I was pretty young myself uh, back in the 1970s in New Mexico here with us today. Mirabai has written a number of wonderful books some about Christian mystics, wild mercy, living the fierce and tender wisdom of the women mystics, and three or four books where she translated and updated the mystical teachings of Julian of Norwich, uh, Teresa of Avila, and St. John of the Cross. I myself have been very interested in the Christian mystics. I teach, I talk Buddhism, but at my heart, I'm a Christian mystic. So, uh, and also Mirabai wrote a wonderful memoir. What's the name of it again? I forget. Caravan of No Despair. The Caravan of No Despair that she she gave me at a retreat we taught together in Maui last year with a number of other wonderful people. And her book really enchanted me. So without further ado, my old friend Mirabai Star, who I met apparently in 1978 when she was 17 years old and I was in my, in my 78, I was in my 30s at that point, believe it or not. And now I'm 80 and we won't even try to calculate Mirabai's age. So here we are. Welcome. So good to be with you again. Thank you, Ramdev. You are one of my favorites. It's a joy to be with you. And as we were talking before I hit the record button, uh, we started talking about not only meeting at the Lama Foundation at a retreat that I taught with Stephen Levine uh, back in the 70s, when Mirabai said that's when she really got involved and interested in the work with conscious dying, but also that we con were in contact right after her daughter died. And she was in profound grief, and we had some conversation then. So sometime during our conversation today, I'd love to touch on grief and also what it was like for you to know Ramdas when you were a teenager. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to talk about all of that. And about and the Christian mystics and grace. So we have so many great, great topics here. Uh, I'll let you choose where you'd like to dive in. Well, you know, we're talking largely to a Ramdas and Neem Karoli Baba um, family, 
And in this circle, we don't often talk about the Judeo-Christian traditions. Uh, we, we mostly root ourselves in the so-called Eastern traditions of Hinduism and, and secondarily Buddhism, right? Yeah. And so in some ways, I think it would be wonderful to plunge into the, to the Christian mystics because I think that's a topic that isn't often uh, talked about here. And there is probably even some sense of suspicion about the Judeo-Christian traditions, particularly Christianity, which, by the way, I share. I mean, I grew up, by the way, in a, um, in a secular Jewish family, culturally Jewish, barely, but completely Jewish. Uh, but my parents really rejected all religion, that religion was the, the bad guy. Religion was responsible for most of the suffering in the world, according to them. And, you know, who could, they were of that post-Holocaust generation who could possibly believe in a God that would allow such, such suffering. So yeah. I like to tell them that the God they don't believe in is the God I don't believe in too. But the, the point is that I grew up with this allergy to religion and especially to Christianity. And then lo and behold, by the time I was in my thirties, I was madly in love with the Christian mystics and I, I couldn't resist them. And that ended up being at the heart of my, my career and my Dharma. When we were in India, Maharaji talked to the Westerners largely about Christ. <laughs> and in fact, he knew that was the idiom. <laughs> I grew up as a Danish Lutheran. Mm. And uh, which is kind of Catholicism without the beauty, mm. just the, just the guilt. Mm. So I I rejected Christianity as soon as I went off to college. I stopped going to church, and I went to I met Ramdas. I went to India, and I felt okay. Maharaji is going to give me this wonderful Hindu mantra, and I romanticized that notion. And he gave me a Christian mantra. Mm. <laughs> so my root. Guru mantra. All these, all these decades since, has been a mantra, sort of based in the name of of Christ, mm. and uh, it's really gradually, gradually pried open my heart to Christianity again. Mm, very gradually. Can you share it, or is it a secret? I'd rather not. I'd rather not put that out on the internet. What my root mantra is, but okay, maybe later you can just share it with me personally. Okay, that's a deal. Mm-hmm. So Ramdas had this great saying, purify and wait for grace. Mm. And uh, let me read a short poem from St. John of the Cross. What is grace? What is grace? I asked God. And he said, all that happens. Then he added, when I look perplexed, could not lovers say that every moment in their beloved's arms was grace? Existence is my arms. Though I well understand how one can turn away from me until the heart has wisdom. Mm -hmm. Existence is my arms. Mm -hmm. All that happens is grace. And I have these ongoing groups. And a couple of months ago, I, I had a week where we talked about grace. And many people were very uncomfortable with the notion of grace. Mm. Uh, most of these people they're not so much into Maharaji. They're more into Buddhism and meditation. I'm the meditation teacher. And this idea that grace is this free and unmerited favor of God, uh, where St. John of the Cross is saying grace is everything. Uh, Ram Dass's stroke was grace. 
whatever happens that is difficult is grace. It's all bringing us back home. Hmm. Yeah. So that's you're you're singing my song, Ramdev. <laughs> Um, for one thing, John of the Cross is my one of my beloved teachers. My very first book of over a dozen now was was a translation of Dark Night of the Soul, his masterwork, and I'm rooted in in his garden. But um, so that's one way you're singing my song. Another is that um, this this teaching that everything, all that is, is the landscape where the divine lives is is crucial you know i think that many of the spiritual traditions have conditioned us to believe that if we do such and such and become some version of the self that we could only imagine ourselves being will be worthy of the encounter with the divine which is what a mystical experience is a direct encounter with with the sacred but what the the mystics really are teaching us, like John of the Cross and like all of the women mystics, especially who are so embodied, is that the very place where we reside is the place where that connection flowers. I'm, I actually just started a book this week. I started writing a new book called Ordinary Mysticism, Your Life as Holy Ground. Wonderful and title. Thank you. That'll be out in a couple of years because with traditional publishing, it takes forever. I have a year to write it and then it, it'll take a year to be published. But it's I'm very excited about finally being able to put words around what my soul has known for a long time, which is there is no other to be or to do. It's it's all right, right here. And so the the final, the third part that I'd like to respond to in what you said was the Ramdas quote about, you know, purifying yourself and then grace will come or may come. And that's the heart of the Christian mystical tradition is what's known as the, the via negativa, you know, and the first part of the via negativa is the via purgativa, where we, through practices, these great methodologies that have been handed to us, and in my case, across the spiritual traditions, purification practices in Judaism and Christianity and Islam, in Hinduism and Buddhism, to do these, these beautiful purifying practices, which encourage us basically to die before we die. Um, and then the second part of the via negativa, the second of the three parts is the via illuminativa, that once you've scoured the vessel intentionally with your own hard work and discipline and devotion, then maybe, and maybe not, the grace will come. That's the via illuminativa. Like we can't bargain for it. We can't negotiate for it, it but we can prepare ourselves. And that's the via illuminativa. The light comes and it fills that vessel with radiance and then if we're really blessed, the warmth, this is the, my interpretation that you won't read this anywhere, but the via unitiva, which is the third of the three parts of the via negativa, the Christian mystical um, kind of model, is, is when we have union, right? We've, we've done the work of purification. We've allowed ourselves to be a space that grace may come and fill us. And then we 
unite, we merge, or as Julian of Norwich calls it, oneing, we one with the mm-hmm. one. But my sense of that is that the illuminativa, the light, the radiance that has come in as a result of our sweeping out the chamber of the heart, another, or polishing the mirror of the heart, these are all mystical phrases from different traditions, that when that radiance comes pouring in, the vessel softens and the edges melt. And that's when we pour into God. Mm, how beautiful. So that, that, that uh, St. John of the Cross poem I was reading before, where everything is grace, that seems to be coming out of the final stage of being united, that when you're united, you can see that even the difficult Right. Whereas in the first stage, we're still working the program a bit. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we're intentionally trying to show up for what is, but it's work. I mean, Teresa Vavila, um, my other beloved mystic, who I also had the great honor of translating, talks about three ways. <laughs> I, I hope you don't mind me going. Uh, you're, no, no, you're no, no, please. Okay. You don't mind these, these like categories. Uh, in some ways, they don't. I don't relate to categories, but in other ways, they some of these mystics have come up with beautiful models. So Teresa very organically and spontaneously understood prayer to be, which we could call meditation. For her, con- prayer was contemplative prayer, that is just turning inward to be with God at, at three different stages. In the first stage, we're, we're carrying, we're lowering a bucket into a well and and yanking it up or, you know, pulling it up with all our might. And water splashes over the edges of the bucket and we carry the bucket across the landscape to water our new little shoots of, of, inner, of our inner life. In the second stage, the second water of prayer, she calls it, is when we crank the water wheel. And this is a, a, a feat of engineering the water wheel and, and you can... You can turn that crank and it'll bring the water up and then it'll channel it into these um, these chutes, right, or whatever, but that will then take carry the water to the garden. So that's much more efficient, but it still requires a lot of energy and it's still kind of noisy and splashy and um, it, it it's effort, it's effort. But the, and then the third water is when the, there are irrigation ditches that we have here in northern New Mexico, where I still live in Taos, where you have a mother ditch. They actually call it the the mother ditch, the acequia madre. And then these little ditches that go to everybody's individual gardens and to all the individual furrows to water the garden. And then actually there's a fourth water of prayer. And that's much easier. You just lift a, 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 what do you call it? Like a gate and the water comes into the garden. But the fourth water of prayer is grace. It's rain. And rain is grace. It's can't, mm. it's not earned or deserved. It just comes from the heavens. And that's the most effective water of all. And I was just thinking about this yesterday that because I just came from a three-day writing retreat where I was trying to get push my my little book into the water, my new book, you know, get it started, which is so hard. And I realized that I was in that water wheel phase of the book. You know, when the book for every book for me is a sacred offering, it's an act of prayer, it's karma yoga, however you might want to see it. It's not just a book. <laughs> and so I saw that I was cranking that water wheel over the course of this, this last three days, you know, just 
It takes a lot of effort, but it's very gratifying when the water comes pouring through. Rumi has this quote, grief is the garden of grace. And I think a lot of people, and certainly myself at times, are back in the bucket phase Mm -hmm. where there are uh, some scars, conditioning, woundedness that makes it hard to realize that even this is grace. And uh, Rumi seems to be saying here that it is the grief, the sense of separation from ourselves, from each other, and from God that has to be purified to purify and wait for grace. And uh, to me, there's there's so many practices. There's meditation and prayer and all those, all those practices to begin to have a more loving, open relationship with our grief. And to me, grief can be very subtle. It's not just right. somebody very near to us died or somebody or a relationship ended. But just moment to moment, how we're not really connected with ourselves. We're go- people are going around in a disconnected state. And uh, that almost everybody is living with this at least subtle, if not more, background grief hmm. uh, that, that keeps us from experiencing the grace. And so my, my, my experience has been that by reading the mystics, that they're giving us the courage and the and the map to the the path here to transmute separation into connection. Mm. Yes, and there and the poetry of the mystics, which I love so much, is is really um, rooted in yearning, in longing, and and that's why you know pretty early on. Well, not that early on. When I was 40, my youngest daughter died, as you alluded to earlier, um, in a car accident. Jenny, she was she was 14, and we were very close and very entwined. And um, it felt like the ground of my life had fallen out, away from under my feet, and I was in I was in free fall. I had no no place to stand, and and I had just. Dark Night of the Soul, my translation of Dark Night of the Soul had just come out. Literally, they coincided to the day. Um, that's kind of what my memoir is about. But there was this sense that my longing for my child was inextricably entwined with my lifelong yearning for God. And that if I could just show up and not turn away from the fire of that anguish, if I could sit in the flames of grieving Jenny, I would reconnect with my, I would even call it my birthright of longing for God. I mean, my name, my Mirabai, which was given to me by Ramdas when I was 15, is, you know, Mirabai the poet was so much um, about the portal that longing becomes to union. So it's not an obstruction, it's an opening. And I think that my experience of grief and my work as a grief counselor is is about helping people to actually be with the power 
of that experience as a transformational um, invitation. But it, it's hard. Not everybody wants to do that. <laughs> and I don't blame you. You know, when you're when you're grieving hard, it's really the kind of the last thing you want to do is say yes to it. So it has to be a gentle, tender, compassionate uh, invitation. And those of us like you and I who sit with people in grief do so with, with great tenderness and deep respect for where they are. My experience has been that when people are grieving, their hearts are more available and ripped open than yeah. any therapy, any spiritual practice, any meditation, any retreat you can go to, that, yes. that grief is the most horrible, wonderful opportunity yes. for finding depths of the heart that uh, years of therapy probably are just beginning to touch. So right. it's it's an opportunity. It's a horrible opportunity. I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but right. when it's there, can it be... Can it be accepted? Can it be lived? And you even said just a minute ago that when when your daughter died, you felt like you lost your ground. Yeah. And to me, the ground is mother, mother earth, mother, mother, cap, uh, mother with a capital M. Yeah. And uh, groundedness to me implies really being able to receive the sense of support that is always, always available, even when it seems like we're in free fall. Rhonda says this wonderful metaphor. He said, entering the spiritual path is like jumping out of an airplane and partway down realizing you don't have on a parachute, but then further the way down realizing it's okay because there's no ground. Yeah, <laughs> right. I remember that. <laughs> so that you're just, so, but that time in between no parachute, no ground is very scary. Right. It's like, maybe there are big rocks coming up in the air here. Maybe, maybe I'm not really supported in this, this path of surrender. Mm. So to me, it's a lot about trusting the mother. It's trusting that even this, even this can be accepted. Mm. Yeah. Maharaji said, you have to understand the mother to realize God. Mohammed said, uh, "Paradise lies at the feet of the mother." Oh, I didn't hear that one. All the mystics get get it, <laughs> but the mainstream, you know, religious authorities are, you know, it scares the shit out of them to to say such things. But I think the mystics are at the extreme edge, what Richard Rohr calls the edge of the inside, and they can they can get away with it. But um, oh, so many things come up in me when you when you speak about this, Ramdev. One is John of the Cross. You know, the teaching of the Dark Knight of the Soul is not about suffering necessarily, although it's it certainly involves suffering. But that's not what it's about. Um, the Dark Knight of the Soul is about that free fall. It's about that place between jumping out of the airplane and realizing you don't have a parachute before you realize there's no ground. Yeah. <laughs> it's that place. And it's terrifying. And it must be. John of the Cross says we have to go through that space of radical unknowing where there is not even a glimmer of certainty mm. that, that we're going to be okay. Right. That's where the transformation happens, is in that spot. 
And that's the dark night of the soul. And it's holy. It's holy, holy, holy. So that's one thing that comes to me when you speak. And um, thank you for reminding me of that delicious quote. It's everything. And the other is that I write about this in Caravan of No Despair. It's a very, very short section, but um, I remember it. And people often comment on, on it, especially bereaved parents that and mothers, mothers in particular, um, that there was a point early on after Jenny died, like within the first 10 days or so, when, maybe even the first week. You know, I, I, I was telling you off camera earlier that you, when you told me that I had called you after Jenny died and I had no recollection, that traumatic loss, and some of you listening will relate to this, is like a brain injury. This has been proven scientifically that our brains, when we experience trauma, um, it's very similar to when you're hit in the head and you don't remember things for years afterwards. I don't remember calling you. <laughs> that I, I'm really glad I did. Um, but there was this moment early on where I was on the floor just wailing. I was wailing. Everyone had left the house finally. Nobody would leave me alone. They just wouldn't leave me the fuck alone for the first a few, several days, week, more. Um, and I needed to be alone. That's the, the interesting thing that people forget about grieving people, maybe grieving introverts <laughs> in particular. We need to just like be with it. Like, give me a minute. So finally I was left alone um, in the house and I got, got on with it. You know, I needed to just wail. And I had a kind of vision. I'm not a visionary, but this was, was a version of a vision <laughs> in which I saw myself being held in this net, being held, suspended, but protected. And I realized, I saw that the net was woven of other mothers who had lost children throughout time and right now. You know, I, Jenny died right after 9-11. So, you know, the war, we had gone to war against Afghanistan and and now we're ramping up for war in Iraq, which, as we know, went on for decades. And so there was this sense that I had in that moment of being connected to mothers everywhere who were losing children and had lost children and would in the future. It was like time became very, very fluid and that I was being held by this net of mothers. And I also saw that one day, not now and maybe not soon, I would be one of the the points like an Indra's net, you know, the, the nexus points mm. that held the other mothers mm. when they lost a child. It was very embodied because it was this this the fem the way of the feminine. It's very much in the body. It was very visceral. And it shifted everything. I mean, it didn't mean I didn't continue to grieve hard, and I still do twenty years later. But it it was a, it was a huge gift. So both groundlessness and the net revealed themselves to me in the most difficult loss of my life. I've had many, like some of you, many many losses, but nothing compared to the loss of my child. So that loss of ground, that loss of the mother, uh, seems to be embedded in our culture, hmm. and certainly embedded in in contemporary religion, Christianity, Judaism. Uh, 
maybe that's why Eastern religions have become popular among one subpopulation here. But uh, the work you're doing of of bringing out the teachings of the female mystics, I think, is so important. And somehow, my own practice. I've been I've been meditating for 50 years, and I'm still as neurotic as you see before you right now. Ramdas had another great line. He's so easy to quote. If you're a son of a bitch and you get enlightened, you'll be an enlightened son of a bitch. (laughs) Right. But what I'm trying to get at here is that the longer I practiced in, in the beginning, it was more about, I've got to purify. I've got to deepen my mindfulness. I've got to open my heart. I've got to get from this really neurotic suffering place. Ramdas even said that I had the longest dark night of the soul of any person he'd ever met. And I was just getting started at that point. I was about half done, I think. And he was he was kind of awed by how stubborn I was in my in my pain. But anyway, what I'm saying is that as my practice has evolved, it becomes much more about receiving and and that that softness and suppleness that Julian of Norwich talks about so beautifully than it is about accomplishment and this more male patriarchal, I'm going to do my practice. And so many people come to me and say, I can't meditate. Uh, I try to meditate and I'm not doing it right. As if there were some correct way to pray or to meditate because that where they are now is not good enough. And they're using practice. They're approaching practice from a place of inadequacy and poverty to get to a place of, assumed abundance when in fact uh hafiz and other poets say uh everything you god sees you as perfect everything you say think or do is perfect as it is that was really the great blessing of being around maharaji is that it was difficult being around him because any lack of relationship was on me he was always there available but he kept seeing the place where I was whole. And I eventually started believing it, mm. you know, that he seemed to know what was going on. So if he thought I was this whole perfect, loving human being, then he must be right. Mm. Uh, and that maybe I can meditate from that place. And another thing he said, somebody asked him, how should we meditate? And he said, meditate like Christ meditated. Just lose yourself in love. Christ gave his life for the Dharma because he loved everybody so much. And I've used that quote in my teachings for decades. And still, I'm, I sit down and I, I do some invocation. I say some mantra. I deepen my mindfulness. And I've just been asking myself, what am I waiting for to totally die into love? Mm. What am I really waiting for? I mean, what am, what am I waiting for to dive into total radical loving surrender? Uh I think we get attached even to our practices. Oh, yeah. And letting go of even that and just becoming that rather than still practicing to get to that. Mm. Yes, beautiful, Ramdave. Everything you're saying, I'm resonating with. You know, I think we're all 
we are all heirs to this patriarchal model um, in across the spiritual traditions. Like, think I think we like to believe that you know those of us, especially who grew up in the West, particularly in the United States, that we're maybe in Christian households, most likely. Um, that we're rejecting that framework because it's so limiting by going to the Eastern traditions and and embracing such practices as meditation and mantra and so on, and that that's an alternative. You know, that's that's liberation from the the prison of our, the churches of our childhood or something. But that, in fact, we bring to it, and those traditions also are rooted in this patriarchal um, messaging. That just as you're saying that we we do these practices to become somebody that we're not and to get somewhere we aren't rather than as well for me a love offering that that meditation is is me saying yes to the presence of what Teresa Vavila sometimes calls the friend you know this is my time to be with the beloved and yay. So it's it's there in Buddhism and, and Hinduism too. This this patriarchal message of you know you're even in Advaita Vedanta, which is purporting to say you know the non dualist path, purporting to say there's nowhere to go and there's nothing to do because you're already there and you are it. You're not separate from it, but it's all very intellectual and um, methodical, you know, as as a process and. It, it lacks, I feel, a certain kind of organic, embodied, feminine heart space that, that we're trying to reclaim, not just women, but men too. Because yeah. we're all, you know, we all suffer from, from this, this message of not enoughness and yeah. of too muchness. If you're a woman, you're often accused of being too much, too, too emotional, too many things. In Tibetan Buddhism, they they don't give the non-dual teachings until one has said a million mantras and a hundred thousand prostrations and really deepened a sense of compassion for all suffering beings. And then deity practice of really opening your heart to that wholeness that you are. Then from the heart, from the uh, completely spacious heart, then one can go into non-duality but to go into non-duality intellectually uh it's maybe more direct but i think it's a it's very fraught even dangerous to a certain extent mm-hmm. that that one can in fact there were so many t- uh westerners that came back from india being with people like punjaji and they say i'm enlightened he said i'm enlightened everybody's enlightened yeah. so i'm enlightened and i'm going to be your teacher now yeah. and they, they they were clearly not enlightened other than the fact that everybody is enlightened absolutely and theoretically, but in practice they're it's like my first meditation teacher, Suzuki Roshi said, you're all perfect, but there's still some room for improvement. <laughs> Suzuki was your teacher. I'd forgotten that. That's wonderful. yeah. San Francisco Zen center long ago. Wow. So going back to that notion of practice from a place of inadequacy or wholeness, I've noticed that when I'm saying mantra, it can happen from different levels that are developmental, if you will. That Initially, it's like that bucket thing where I'm trying to create a relationship. I don't feel it yet. I felt it in the past or I've read about it or I know people who seem to be there, but I'm, I'm invoking, please, God, show up. 
And then there's that place of there's a juicy relationship. There's this dualistic, I'm in love with God and God is there and God loves me. But then in the tantric stage of mantra or devotion, that each time I say Ram or Ma, that that is not asking God to show up. It's not a relationship with God. It is God. Mm. That the, the word itself is completely inseparable from the God that the word is pointing to so that the mantra is not pointing or it's not a tool. It Each time I say Ram, the, it is Ram. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love that. And then finally, the mantra says itself. It goes into non-duality, that there's nobody saying the mantra. That it's uh, Namdev, the great, Hindu saint who was really into mantra, Namdev means Lord of the name. He said, the whole universe is densely permeated with the name. Densely, I just love that phrase. Everything's densely permeated with the name. And there are stories that Maharaji would take people to these sacred places like Chitrakut or something. And he'd temporarily open up their wisdom eye and they could see that on each leaf, it said Ram. Mm. On each tree, it was Ram. On each stone, it was Ram. Mm. Yes, the whole, and that's another thing that Islam says, the whole world, the whole created world is proclaiming the name of God. All of creation, that was it. All of creation is proclaiming the name of God. I love that. That is such a beautiful um, template you just gave us. Thank you. Well, by way of confession, it's just basically Hinayana Mahayana Vajrayana Zogchen. Oh, yeah. That sure. the core of Theravada Hinayana Buddhism is taking refuge, uh, reaching out, invoking, trusting that all you need to do is be here. I mean, the the, the secret ingredient of, of Vipassana is that we're trusting. We don't have to do anything other than pay attention because underneath it all is wholeness. Right, so that the the core teaching there, the core understanding is that uh, we're taking refuge. That enlightenment, Buddha Dharma Sangha, already is pre-existing, and then Mahayana Buddhism brings in compassion, the Bodhisattva ideal. We're we're opening our heart. We're not just we're not just paying attention, but we're paying attention with love. It's not just being here now. It's being here now with an open heart. And then the open heart is so spacious that the eye fixation, although it remains, it's just one little point in the vast sky of mind, which leads us very naturally into seeing that everything is sacred, this tantric understanding. Right. Mm, That's beautiful. And then it all becomes then there's no separation. There is not two-ness anymore. Subek, all one. All one. Oh, what a beautiful way to bring this delicious conversation toward a close. Any final parting words from beloved Mirabai? <laughs> oh, I just, I, I'm seeing your this teaching you just gave us here at the end as a book, of course, because I am, a writer and that's how I see the world. That's like the shoemaker sees, I can't remember what the quote is. You're much better at quotes than I am. Sees the whole world as 
covered with leather. Um, but anyway, something like that. Um, I see everything as a book and this, there's so much richness in those four parts, you know, so I see a four part book. This is, <laughs> this is not for everybody. This is just for you, Ramdev. I should save it for later. Uh, but I am writing that book, so I better get it done before you do. <laughs> yeah, no, you must, no, I'm you, you must write. It. And, and each of those four parts could bring in the different spiritual traditions, even though it goes from, you know, Hinayana or Theravada to Mahayana to Vajrayana to, uh, Non-duality, Zogchen. Yeah, to Zogchen, non-duality, um, within, which is a Buddhist model within each one of those. You could bring and weave in all the spiritual traditions and the divine feminine. So um, do I have any last um, offering to make, beloved Ramdev and, and family, all of you listening? I, You know, it would just be to reiterate what your heart already knows, which is that you are enough. You are not too much, that the very ground of your life is holy. You are standing on holy ground right now. And yes, the world is burning and the suffering is unimaginable. And many of us do not feel like we are equipped to do anything about it because our own lives are burning. You know, our personal lives, our bodies, our relationships, our families, and at the at the the most outside edge are communities. So how could we possibly show up as a source of hope and healing and new humanity for the world? I think that that conditioning that, that there's some place to get and, and we can never hope to get there is what's stopping us from stepping up right now from exactly where and who we are mm -hmm. um, and being an offering of love in this world, you don't, it's like Ram Dave was saying, you don't have to be, you know, meditation is probably not going to make you less neurotic, but it will open your heart and increase your capacity to hold what is. So trust yourself. It's, it's right here. It's right in you. You are it. Thank you so very much. If I could make a few parting comments myself, Please. Uh, certainly that model uh, the Tibetans have a very clear roadmap, but it applies to everything. It applies to Christianity and Judaism and Sufism. So I, I just want to reiterate that uh, it's not, you don't have to be a Buddhist to go through these stages. Uh, secondly, at the beginning of the pandemic, many people came to me and were feeling very inadequate to the task. There was so much suffering. Uh, what can I do? And what I found was that instead of just doing practice for myself, Tonglen or compassion practice for Dale or Ramdev or for the people in my groups, is that doing practice for the planet, doing practice for all beings who are suffering, dedicating my, my individual practice with the wish that all beings be free from suffering, uh, really took me and a lot of the people I was talking to beyond this sense of helplessness yeah. And hopelessness that that even though you're in your room there in Taos and I'm in my room here in Fairfax, California, uh, I really have deep belief and faith that by 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 practicing for all beings that that blessing, that compassion, that healing force is being spread through the world. Mm, me too. I believe that with all my heart. Thank you for that reminder. 
And thank you so much, my dear friend. Mm. Uh, I am coming to New Mexico next month. Maybe we can even see each other. Oh, I would love that. I'm going to be in Mexico most of October, but let's, oh. <laughs> I, I hope that we can. I would love to see you. Well, it's the very end of October and the beginning of November. So maybe you'll be back. We shall see. Oh, okay. I would love to see you here. Thank you, Ramdev, for just this chance to hang out with you and all of you for your your beautiful hearts. What a blessing. Thank you, Tok. Goodbye. Bye. Ram Ram. Ram Ram. Sita Ram. Ram.